Hello, my name's Paul, and along with Leanne, we are part of a team of people uh, leading the inner city. And I've often wondered about what my job entails. Having spent many years lecturing at the University of Cape Town, I came across a useful definition a couple of months ago, which is this. It says that in a world full of many things that are trying to grab our attention, a world full of many different voices, perhaps the most valuable thing I can do for the people I lead is provide focus, to provide clarity around what's eternally important. And in times like this, it feels like the volume's gone up on that job description to say that there are many things that are pulling our attention. There are many stories I'm hearing of what is happening on the ground. And whilst I do not have all the answers, I do have an opportunity now to focus you on what's eternally important and to help all of us look at the life of Jesus Christ. A quote that's helped me tremendously comes from Dallas Willard, who was a lecturer out of the States, and he had this to say. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Dallas Willard there making the claim that in a world full of heartbreaking needs, and we're so aware of those right now, the most important thing for us is to look at the life of Jesus Christ, not the concept of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, and to become practitioners, apprentices of the way of Jesus. If you're listening in right now, you might think Jesus Christ is the last person who we should be focusing on. There's so many more important things. There's so much else going on. And I quickly want to help you with a, with a thought that helped me when I was a UCT student myself and chair of the UCT Debating Society. That it's a simple analogy of two lists. Imagine two lists. The one list is all the people that have made the biggest influence on the world, the biggest influences in the world. And the other list is all the people that claimed to be God. And if you collected up the list of all the people who were big influences, I'm sure you would have people like Muhammad or Buddha or Jesus on that list. But if you collected up the other list of people that claim to be God, you probably would have a list of people who made the claim but never really demonstrated that they'd followed through with it. I'd, I'd suggest that there are not a lot of people that span both lists. You see, when you uh, investigate faith, often you think that they are all the same, but that's superficially the case. When you investigate, you find things like Buddha saying that we mustn't look to him, we should look to his teaching. We see the prophet Muhammad saying, do not look to me, look to the one I'm pointing towards. But Jesus Christ is different. He accepts worship. He accepts a group of people gathering and saying that what's eternally important is him. But he didn't just stay on the claim to be godless. He also had unbelievable influence in this world such that today we're making a way no matter how hard it is and all the technology challenges that we're having to download apps, we're making a way because we know someone who's been incredibly influential in the world and also claimed to be God. And so if you don't think Jesus Christ is the person you should start with, uh, I would just give that thought to you right at the beginning to say that that left an impression with me and helped me investigate his life. And that's what we're gonna be doing together here. We're gonna be looking at the Gospel of Mark, which records Jesus Christ's interactions. And we're gonna be studying together what it means to focus our lives on him and to give him the attention he deserves. So we're going to be reading uh, from the book of Mark and 
what we're gonna be trying to do is be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what Jesus would do as a community. And my thought before diving into the text is maybe to use this analogy. Any parents out there would, would know the dreaded message you get from school saying that there's a lice outbreak and you'd have to grab your kid and you'd have to go through their hair meticulously and no kid in their life will sit there quietly. Maybe you've got the exception, but most kids will go kicking and screaming. This is not what I want. This is not what I want. Kids would would want TV now for the holidays. They want sweets. They want to stay up all late. I remember as a child going to Macro before, before it turned into such a frenzy. And I would stare at these shelves of sweets. And I'd go, I can't believe they now come in packs of 72. I'd never seen something like this before. And I'd beg my parents, come on, let's set up a tuck shop. And they never agreed. Whether it's lice, whether it's unhealthy habits, a good parent doesn't give their children what they want. A good parent gives them what they need. We're going to see an interaction now in Jesus Christ's life where the demands on him are plentiful. People are wanting a lot of things. And he hears those demands. In fact, he's going to meet them. But he wants what people need more than what they want, to be clear. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture and we're going to explore what it means for us today. So reading from Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, this is Jesus, after some days... It was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowds, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Thanks be to God for his uh, word to us. Now, I've broken this up into uh, three points and uh, we're going to be exploring those together as we go through the passage and then asking some practical questions at the end, which hopefully take this from a conceptual level to, to our fingertips. First section I've entitled, Breaking In and Finding the King. We, we saw the, the, the narrative there, friends bringing their mates into the presence of Jesus and there's an unexpected twist. They were hoping for a healer and what they got was a king. They wanted the kingdom of, of God. They wanted peace, joy, health, and they bumped into the actual king of that kingdom, breaking in and finding the king. Secondly, we are introduced to the enemies of Jesus. It's quite fascinating that he had them. And these enemies are not the people you expected. These are the people that have, in theory, been waiting for him for so many years, for hundreds of years. And it's these enemies which for the first time are revealed and start to plot against him such that soon they will go away from the crowds and start to plan his downfall. 
And then finally, our last point is the inside-out kingdom. Just the very fact that his enemies are the religious people and this man who we don't know a lot about was so dramatically included in this kingdom and suggesting that the king of the kingdom is introducing a totally different kingdom to what we expected. There's something different about how his reign plays out. So let's dive into the scriptures, breaking in and finding the king. We see that Jesus has been um, out of town and he's returned. He's come home. What an experience. He's been out announcing life in the kingdom as well as demonstrating life in the kingdom. And we see that many were gathered together such that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. This has been a successful homecoming. Obvious question then is to ask, what was drawing people in? What was what was of interest here? And the message that Jesus is bringing, we don't know the motives of the people, but what they were gathering to hear was a message about the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus spoke about more than anything else. If you want to get a little flavor of what the kingdom would be like, um, have a look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In many ways, it's called the Christian constitution. He announced that he was the king of the kingdom, but then he announced through those sort of passages what this kingdom would be like. And people were drawn to understand what it was to be fully human. What was it actually meant to be made in the image of God? What did life in the kingdom look like? And Jesus spoke about that, not just as a concept, but, but down to our fingertips, what would life look like? Jesus was acknowledged as what's called an authority rabbi. He would often say things like this, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. In other words, there's been a teaching laid down, but I'm establishing a new teaching. And so people were hanging on to his words to find out what life in his kingdom would look like. And then we have a particular incredible story captured. Four people grab their mate who's not able out of his own physical weakness to get to Jesus. And they carry him through. They encounter a crowd that they just can't push through. But they make a plan. They make their way around and onto the top of the roof and they lower down their mate, which is kind of hazardous on its own. And they get him into the presence of Jesus. It's an incredible story. And I just am challenged straight away because I think of myself in my own life at various points, I would have, I would have stopped on the journey. I would have said, hey, um, you need three other people before we can carry you. You need four people. Where the other three? Yep. Ah, it feels like, feels like they're not around. So I'm gonna keep going with my life. Or certainly when it got to the point where I'd have to break in to a building, I would have said, you know, this feels illegal. This is illegal. Surely this isn't what, what I should be doing right now. But yet these friends persevere such as their desire to get their mates into the presence of Jesus. It seems like in all, the, in all the other voices going on in life, they recognize there was something different about Jesus and his presence. They came, of course, expecting a healer, but they got so much more than they expected. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Which of course is just totally an unexpected line. Jesus should have said, son, be healed. Uh, son, rise up and walk. That, that's what everyone kind of had anticipated. This is what the moments had built towards. There was a crisis, clearly. Physical health was in danger. And what was desired was dramatic healing. But Jesus isn't giving them what they want in this moment. He's loving them deeply and giving them what they need. A kid doesn't want to have lice taken out of the air but a loving parent moves towards them because they know what they need. And so we are hit with the line in this passage which would have taken everyone's breath away. And we need to also pause and think about the implications of what Jesus is saying. 
Do you see how tender he is? He, he addresses him as son. He's, he's introducing a whole new kingdom and he's saying that there's a new kind of relationship that can be created between us and God. Saying that with great tenderness, that there's a possibility of having that level of relationship with God. It's been family with God. But at the exact same time, he challenges by saying your sins are forgiven. He, he's just said the word son, which we love. And then he says the word sins, which kind of challenges us and makes us think, what is he talking about? Well, at root, what Jesus is identifying is that each and every one of us have a deep need, a deep need for a relationship to be restored between us and God. See, at the root of all sin is actually just unbelief that there is a God. It's an attitude in our minds, maybe never vocalized, that says, Maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't, but I'm just going to get on with my life and do as best as I can. And what Jesus is saying is that that leaves you bereft in so many ways. Firstly, it, it leads to spiritual emptiness because without your creator God involved in your life, with unbelief at, at work in your life, you miss out on the most important relationship and you're going to be going around with a sense of spiritual emptiness precisely because you were created for relationship with God. But it goes further. It then leads to a lack of awareness within your own heart about how you're wired and how life works internally. There's some parts of your life you're not even aware of because of a lack of awareness of how you were made and for what you were made. And that bleeds out into society in all kinds of ways. We can be talking dramatic ways as in world wars and throughout history, but we can also be talking closer to home with the breakdown of close friendships and family. The consequences of sin and a broken relationship with God are seen in our world on a daily basis. We don't have to look far Jesus knows that although we don't like talking about it and often we don't want to talk about it, we need to talk about it. But he doesn't just diagnose the problem, he offers the prescription as well. He's a good doctor that identifies what's going on and also offers an opportunity for forgiveness. It's an incredible moment. I, I, I hope we're shocked by how countercultural this is for Jesus to be talking at this moment about sins being forgiven rather than about physical healing. Think about your own life. If a friend approached you and said to you, man, please, can you just help me out financially? I just need this. And you turn around and say, no, 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 you actually don't need that. That's not, what you, that's not what you need. That's what you want. Let me tell you what you need. I mean, straight away, people are going, who are you? Who are you to tell me what I need? I know what I need. It's, it's offensive to say what Jesus is saying. He said son, which is so tender. And now he's talking about sins and he's talking about, I'm gonna give you what you need, not what you want. And straight away, that is challenging for them to hear and of course, it's challenging for us to hear. But Jesus isn't on a mission to just challenge. He's on a mission to love. And he's using this opportunity, a, a, a moment of breaking in to reveal that he is the king. And that revelation either is accepted or it's not, but it's a challenge to each and every one of us even today. The implications for our lives are so obvious. So many of us are praying for physical healing and we should for those loved ones close to us, for, for many uh, who in our nation are currently suffering. And we are fearful around the future and we take those fears to God and we pray. And Jesus is gonna hear our prayers, but at the same time, he's gonna use this as an opportunity, I believe, to point towards our deepest need. Because even if we are physically healed and many of us, I pray, will be, there ultimately will come the day where we will all die and what answers do we have on the other side of the grave? Jesus Christ in this moment is telling us that whilst physical healing is what we want and that's good, 
is something more that he offers, which is life and life in abundance. And so in a world full of many things that are drawing our attention, we have a moment when you look at a verse like this to base our lives on who Jesus Christ is and to look at what he has to offer. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And what's incredible is that Jesus doesn't just talk about forgiveness. He also talks about what he terms as blessing, stepping into relationship with God, overflowing with what it means to be a human. He talks about the multi-dimensionality of life in the kingdom, where we're restored to God, yes, but that overflows then in, in greater self-awareness, where we catch ourselves going, oh, I didn't even know that was in me, but now I'm understanding myself so much better. We, we, we go out in relationships with people, and although it doesn't happen overnight, we become part of a kingdom that is reweaving the society before us. This group of people broke in, and they got more than what they bargained in. They got a king. And you would think that everyone would celebrate at that point. But because of the challenge factor being so high, the enemies of Jesus now reveal themselves. They step forward. And we see straight away in verse six that his authority is questioned. Let's read together. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes are what would have been regarded as teaching rabbis. They would have known the law of God and they should have had an expectation of a Messiah coming one day. And they are on the ball. They're actually right. There is a massive claim getting made by Jesus. See, it's only God that can forgive sins. And so he is blaspheming. And they, having studied scripture, know that. And they move towards him and challenge him straight away. In many ways, this is just bizarre because they should be the ones sitting on the edge of their seat saying, I can't believe this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Like they should be, they should be saying, are you, are you the Messiah? But instead they have, have flipped over and essentially come with accusation and have clearly shown themselves to be enemies of Jesus. I've, I struggled to find an analogy for what this would look like and I might lose some of you here, but the best I could come up with was the, the Premier League soccer tournament. There's one club, Liverpool, have many fans in this country and they've been waiting 30 years to win the league. It would be the equivalent of having had such a long wait. They are moments away from winning the league for one of those fans to turn around and say, oh, I can't believe it. You know, we won the league, yes, but... but what a bad manager we have. Well, that player is terrible. I mean, everyone would look at that and say, this is just bizarre. This should be the moment you are the most celebratory. But it would be, would be strange for them to, to actually attack in that moment. So these scribes are, are going to get angrier and angrier with Jesus. And I've thought about why is that the case? Why are these insiders trying to throw Jesus out and the answer, I think, is quite simply that Jesus came in a way that they were challenged by. Jesus came in a way that was different to how they visualized God coming. As Cape Tonians, we know about the Cape Town Cycle Tour. And you know it's, it's much easier being behind someone in their slipstream so that they go forward and you kind of get in behind and you can kind of use their energy and there's less effort required. And using that analogy, I think what the scribes are saying is, oh, well, Jesus, I know you're trying to say all this stuff, but please come back into our slipstream. Come listen to us. Come be made in our image. And what Jesus is saying is that that's absolutely bizarre. I'm the creator of the world. I'm God made visible. Get into my slipstream. Understand that I'm the king of the kingdom and this is what the kingdom is like. 
it's a hard message for them to hear and they resisted it. A, a bit later on, they're gonna, they're gonna challenge Jesus again about the fact that his followers didn't fast like others, that, that he uh, did work on the Sabbath. They're gonna find more and more reasons to oppose Jesus. And this enemy force is actually gonna go all the way through to the cross where Jesus Christ is crucified, not by uh, the, 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 the ruffians of society or the people that, that you thought would do it. He was crucified by these very religious leaders that refused to accept God as he was because they thought God should be different to them. And so ultimately, you'll see that Jesus moves towards them because he knows their opposition is not gonna be healthy for them. So Jesus asks them a question. He, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? He perceives what's going on. And then he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus is, is loving them in this moment and he's trying to get them to think and he's trying to get them to answer a question. And the question is, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and, and walk. Now, Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no way to prove or disprove that statement afterwards. You could say it and people would believe it or not, but there would be no evidence. And so Jesus says to them, it's obviously easier to say these things, your sins are forgiven, but so that you will see that that claim has authority, so that you will see that I'm one worthy of basing your one and only life on, I'm also gonna heal I'm gonna be involved in the, the physical um, healing of this particular individual. And he says in verse 10, but you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So in order to demonstrate that I'm the king of the kingdom, I will heal this man. I will meet his physical needs in this moment. Jesus takes this perhaps overly conceptual model of sins being forgiven and shows right then that he has authority over disease, that he, that he has the power to heal this man. He's not only offering what we need, he's also able in this case to meet what we, what we want. And that would, have, that would have been an incredible claim to be able to forgive sins and to heal. And Jesus really wants to make sure that we get it. And so he refers, you see the three words there, son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man. And that is a, a reference from the book of Daniel, which years and years and years, centuries before had been written, talking about the moment of this, of this God made visible, of this Messiah coming. And I'm gonna read it to us from Daniel. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Incredible language there of the nature of the king of this kingdom. You'll read there, uh, it's all nations, it's all peoples, it's all languages. It's an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away and it shall not be destroyed. How comforting to know that Jesus Christ in describing his kingdom is using these kind of words, just as we across the world, all nations, all people, all countries are facing uh, the invasion of another enemy. Christ speaks of an eternal kingdom, which he 
remains the king of. What will our response be? What will our response be? You see, the gospel writer Mark was always intentionally running along two uh, lines of thought whenever he wrote this particular gospel. We'll read from a one a commentator, Donald English, who says this. He says, Mark is pointing us to a double thrust in his message. It is about who Jesus is. It is also about how people should respond to Jesus. These two themes run right through the gospel of Mark. He asked Jesus, how are you going to respond? Another commentator said, in many ways, Jesus Christ is a flame. He'll melt wax and he'll harden clay. As you receive the authority claims of this king, is your heart like wax, like wax that gets melted? Or do you find yourself hardening up with a heart of clay that doesn't respond to the challenge with curiosity and, and excitement, but, but puts up a wall and, and, and stands distant from the person of Jesus Christ? See, I think many were, were offended by what he was saying, precisely because of this final and the shortest point, which is that, what Jesus was doing was he was introducing a kingdom which was utterly unlike anything anyone expected. He was introducing a phrase, the inside out kingdom. All the people that you thought were gonna be inside, all the people you thought who'd earned enough brownie points over years, they, they, they were finally gonna have the, their king of the kingdom arrive. But when he came, he was utterly unlike what they expected and he refused to get into their slipstream of religious rules and practices and, and extracurricular activities in the afternoons. He, he was unlike what they expected. We have this dramatic picture of outsiders, people who weren't even allowed into the kingdom courts, people who couldn't even propel themselves forward, people who needed others to carry them into the presence of God. They were the ones welcomed in. They were the ones in God's presence fully. And, and we see it here. We see in verse 12, our last verse, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed. This man went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom has arrived. And we never saw anything like this. What, what, was, the, what was the ingredient that, that saw things happen? It was faith. It was a group of people saying, we don't have all the answers. It's confusing, but we are going to put our faith in this man. It's not the strength of their faith. It's the object of their faith. It's them taking their lives to Jesus, taking their mess to Jesus, taking their troubles to Jesus. And they experience homecoming. Outsiders are brought in. And the king of the kingdom is showing all of us just how inclusive his reign is. Jesus Christ, if you study his life, opposes anything that stands in the way of the full humanity that he's created us for. He opposes disease. He opposes uh, anything that gets us entangled and, and leads to distance between us and God. And he makes a way for us so that we might have our sins forgiven. We, we're gonna continue to study over the next few weeks as we lead up to Easter, the story of Jesus's life and this inside out kingdom. And we're gonna see opposition get stronger and stronger. Next week, we aren't gonna see a group of friends bringing their mates to Jesus. In fact, we're gonna see a tax collector sit in his booth, seemingly oblivious to who Jesus is, and Jesus comes to him and rescues him. We're gonna see just how utterly different this kingdom is. But before we go to next week, let's leave with a couple of questions that I hope will get us to think about what the difference this makes 
into the nitty gritties of our lives, down to our fingertips. We move from conceptual down to our lives. And, and just an understanding that we're not trying to get a whole bunch of things right off the back of this message. No, we're training ourselves to become more like Jesus. We're training ourselves to, to allow his spirit to lead us. The first uh, point was around breaking in and finding the king. And my question to each and every one of us is this. Is the forgiveness of sins food for your soul? Is the forgiveness of sins food for your soul? Right now, these are confusing times for each and every one of us. And perhaps in the busyness of everything, trying to get your family sorted, trying to get yourself sorted, there's health concerns, there's economic concerns. The busyness of all of that, Jesus Christ has been the last person or the last place you've considered. We're learning about new resources and downloads and there's so much happening. And, but perhaps what's eternally important has been missing. And maybe this message of forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God, a growing self-awareness and a, an ability to, to enter into the kingdom is what you need to hear. And we want to stand with you in all kinds of ways to help you on your journey. Perhaps slowing things down has been precisely for this moment so that the heartbeat of your life, a relationship with God can start to take place. And for Christ followers, there's a way in which we can hear the message of forgiveness, but not allow it to penetrate into uh, who we are and our identities. And perhaps slowing down has also been a traumatic experience for us because we've realized a lot of our worth and a lot of what we see as valuable is the fact that we've been saved to serve, saved to serve. And perhaps God wants to remind us that his greatest commandment wasn't to love people. It was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And this is an invitation to not just be saved to serve, but saved to savor, to enjoy who God is, to enjoy this dramatic offer of our sins being forgiven, to be able to go into the chaos that is around us with God's peace, with his presence, and with the promise that the king of the kingdom is unchanging and in control and is good. We we can so quickly move on from the incredible, radical nature of what Christ has offered us, forgiveness of sins. Second reflection is that the enemies of Jesus came to him and at root, there was an unforgiveness. And so my question to you is, do you forgive others? Do you forgive others? I, I recognize in my own life, in the confusion of what's happening, that, that I'm... Very, uh, very slow to forgive. And I can allow bitterness to take root in my life. I think of the disciples when they wanted to learn from Jesus. One of the questions they asked was, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus did. One of the lines in that prayer was, um, forgive me my sins as I forgive those that sin against me. And we love the first part of that prayer, forgive me my sins. We just looked at that. But the second part, as I forgive others that sin against me, becomes a lot trickier in times where we're feeling like our our decision makers or the people we're, we're partnering with are not looking out for our best interests. I've recognized this in my own life and I'd, I'd say to all of us that there's an opportunity for us to practice forgiveness and grace towards others during this time as, we, as we're struggling to think clearly through the fog of what's happening. I, I got stuck in traffic and I know that's not a dramatic example given all that's happening right now, uh, but it was August weekend and 
someone in the city had decided to give uh, permission to many films taking place in our city. And I got stuck in all kinds of traffic trying to make my way through town with filming in progress, filming in process, signs everywhere. And I remember at one point looking to my wife and saying to her, Leanne, I just feel like someone made a bad decision here. Someone made a bad decision. And, and uh, I, I was doing all kinds of things in my head around how could they do this all at this time? Maybe you're looking through the crisis we're in at the moment and you're close to the action or further away. Just, things aren't making sense and you're struggling to kind of not let that take root in your life. And I did a little thought experiment. I said to myself, Paul, imagine if, imagine if um, you got an email waiting for you at home saying that you'd got 20 million rand, some inheritance of some relative you didn't know about. And I suddenly, I really, I did this trick on myself. I said, what would that feel like? And I suddenly felt a lot more calm in the car. I remember just feeling like I could roll down the window and say to the guy, hey, all the best with your film. I, I really felt a tangible difference in my whole experience because of this one thought experiment that I'd run through. And of course, I was getting myself towards an end goal, which was to say, how much more than 20 million rand? How much more do I have when I have a God who said that I've been welcomed into his kingdom, that he made me, that he knows me, that he is, is, is more interested in what I need rather than what I want, that he can be trusted. Suddenly, I can look at all that's happening and recognize that I can forgive others because I've received so much the grace of God, the adoption into his family. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go and forgive others. Go out into our city with love. See, when God calls us to love him and to love people, he doesn't, he doesn't call us to do something that's impossible. He provides himself on the cross. As we build up to Easter, we, we see how far the enemies of God took it, how much they needed to be forgiven for. And Jesus didn't stay in, in a victim of what his enemies did. He rose again on Easter Sunday and in, in physical resurrection promised us that his kingdom is everlasting. Our greatest enemy has been defeated. And that same spirit that raised him from the dead is available to each and every one of us to help us go out into our city to love others and to forgive others. And my final point is, are you challenged by Jesus? Are you challenged by Jesus? Are you, do you have a Jesus who just agrees with you a lot of the time? Who many, many would, would say, I, I enjoy Jesus because of you know, the fact that he has the same views as me, the same passions as me, the same, the same kind of values as me. And he doesn't challenge me. I would say, if that's your experience, I don't think you know the true Jesus that we read about here and that we study in scripture. See, Jesus is unlike us and he will challenge each and every one of us. And so I'd encourage you that if you are not challenged regularly by Jesus, perhaps you need to use this moment of response to say, Jesus, I've, I've probably made you in my image and asked you to get into the slipstream of my life rather than seeing you for who you truly are and got into the slipstream of your life. Jesus is an incredible king and the kingdom he represents is utterly different to what we expected. And so if we're not being challenged by him regularly, we might not be experiencing him as he truly is. We're gonna have a moment of response and I'd love to remind us of a few things before we do so. The Jesus you need is not a savior who does your bidding. Jesus is the one who's gonna give us what we need, not what we want. The Jesus you need is the one who says, Here's your real problem. The Jesus you need is the one who knows you better than you know yourself. And he can teach you to know yourself. 
Jesus, you need is the one who comes aggressively in resurrection glory to you with his grace and forgiveness, always ready to give you what you need. So Jesus, who loves you enough to say, wait, I'm working out good things, beautiful things, eternal things, trust me. This is the same Jesus who was in that house in Capernaum on that day long ago. And he's here with us today by his spirit. There's no need for you to break the law and to tear a hole in the roof. You are invited right now to meet with him. So I'm gonna call up Donnie now and we're gonna do that together. Wow, thanks, Polly. That was fantastic. I think it would be great for us right now to take a moment uh, where you are. And uh, we're gonna create 30 seconds, uh, 45 seconds for us just to still our hearts and reflect and absorb and just uh, respond in, in prayer to what God might've been saying to you. So we're gonna do that now. Uh, don't let the silence uh, freak you out, but just take this time to respond to God. Go for it. Brilliant. can take more time later in the day, in the week, to reflect on these words. If you feel like God's really been speaking to you, listen to the message again. Open your Bible. Uh, read this text again. Reflect on the text. Uh, look through the notes you've taken and really allow God to massage these truths into your heart. Uh, we often get uh, so much fantastic challenge, but let's also create the time for God to massage these things into our hearts. So thank you, Paul, for serving us so brilliantly. Let me pray for us as I send us on our way. God, what a brilliant reminder today that we wanna, we wanna keep our hearts like wax before you, God. We wanna stay humble. We wanna stay malleable. We wanna... Uh, not only try, we want to we wanna train, God. We, we, we want to train ourselves to follow you. We want to train ourselves to surrender to you, to trust you, to locate ourselves in you. We want to we train ourselves to align our lives with your truth, with who you are, with what you're doing. And so God, would you do that in our hearts? Even though we're far apart right now, John 7, you said, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And so God, we can come to you wherever you are and we can find help and we can find strength and we can find authority and guidance in these times of need. And so God, have your way in us. Keep us humble, keep us soft, keep us tender. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us in what has been a new experience, but uh, 
I'm sure as I've been sitting and listening to Paul that you've also experienced God speaking to us uh, through His Word. God bless. Uh, We'll see you again next week. I'm sure your congregations will be in touch throughout the week. Have a fantastic day uh, with you and your family. God bless.